Well, hello. My name is Barry Hammond and I'm a community chaplain here at St Matthew's at Manly. Today our reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 10. That's 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 10. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which also is what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a, chose, a holy nation, God's precious possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. G'day, my name's Nathan. For those I might not have met before, I'm one of the ministers here at St. Matt's, and it's great to be in God's word together for another week. I wonder if you've taken a look at your passport recently. I know I haven't for obvious reasons. Do you know where your passport is? That's got to be one of the worst feelings, right? You're getting ready for a trip. Remember those? And suddenly it's like, hang on, did I put my passport back in the spot after my last trip? Or you get that awful sinking feeling. It's like, didn't it expire back in March? I call those the passport cold sweats. Remember the good old days as well when they used to stamp these things so you could actually go back and look at all the different places that you'd been. And as annoying as it always is to have to renew your passport every 10 years or whatever, it, it always gave you a, just a glimmer of hope that this will finally be the time when you get a good passport photo. This is it. Only, of course, the truth is that no such thing actually exists. There are no good passport photos. It's one of the constants of the universe. Like, I normally take, you know, fairly good photos, or so my wife tells me. But here are the last three passport photos. Bell calls that one my convict phase. Right, case closed. Let me just fix that for us all. Now this term, we've started a series in the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, and the opening chapters are a lot like a passport. You see, a passport is a declaration of identity. It says something about who someone is, about where they come from, and the, the nation that they belong to. That's exactly what Peter's on about at the start of his letter. As he writes to churches that are scattered across Asia Minor, which is kind of now modern-day Turkey, Peter presses upon them the importance of remembering who they are. It's like he's gone and gotten a passport 
out of the, the filing cabinet in order to jog their memory. And a passport, you know, it, it's not something that we earn. It's something that we receive on the basis of birth, just like those who belong to the family of God. As we heard back in week one, right? We belong not on the basis of our merit or our performance, but on the basis of our new birth by the Spirit. Ain't that good news? And you know, passports, they're not fluid. Like your, your, your status as an Australian citizen, it's fixed. It's not like you can become more Australian, can you? Not even if you start to talk like this and say, Australia, you're either an Aussie or you're not. Just like when it comes to being holy, which is what we heard from Bruce last week. Holy is what Christians are. It's a status that's fixed. And while our status doesn't change, the one thing that does change is us. Over time, we change, don't we? We mature, we learn, we grow, and we actually grow into our new identity and become more and more who we really are. Peter begins by dusting off the passport to remind the churches who they are so that they might actually stand firm in living out that true identity in the world. And that's pretty much how the letter goes. You can split it according to those two different elements, right? You are God's people living in the world. Because you see, who we are shapes how we are. And unless we can wrap our heads around this new identity, then all the commands, all the instructions and the call to holy living, none of it's going to make much sense. It's only once we get a firm grip on our new identity that we can then actually start to embrace the kind of life the new way of being that naturally flows out from it. Now that's going to be the gear that we'll be shifting into next week and really for the rest of term, but not before we come to today's passage, which is really the conclusion to Peter's passport tour. And he draws on two images as he finishes off describing who we are. You are a rock and a priest, or in my case, a priest who rocks. That is, that is so bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. Trust me, that sounded far worse in this empty church. <laughs> Honestly, though, that's what he says. We are rocks and priests. Well, let's start with the first one. It's there in the opening verses, verse 5. Peter says, we are like living stones. Stones that are not just alive, but that are actually also being built into something. Built into a spiritual house, he says. Into God's temple the place of his dwelling that's a mighty image really especially for these kind of small little isolated house churches that are scattered across the place it's a lofty description and it's probably fair to say that it's unlikely these little churches felt quite that grand you know they weren't meeting in in vast glorious cathedrals but little kind of messy humble homes and very likely also meeting under the fear of growing persecution. Even so, Peter reminds them, as inglorious as you may appear, you are in fact living stones being built to form the very dwelling place of God. And that's got to be helpful for us to remember as well, right? Especially now, as our modes of gathering become more and more unusual, 
without song, wearing our COVID masks, trying to compete with the noise of your neighbor's whippersnipper. Strange, inglorious even, and yet still, as we are gathered together, however and wherever that may be, God dwells among us. Now, a curious question comes up at this point. How is it that this building is built? On what does it stand? I can tell you, it's not on the quality of our uh, ministry programs, on the size of our building projects. It's not our cutting-edge tech or even a loving and welcoming community. The spiritual house stands only because it rests on the immovable foundation of the living stone, Peter says, on Jesus, who he then goes on to call the cornerstone to quote Isaiah. You see, in the ancient world, the cornerstone was a foundation stone. It'd be the first stone that was laid, and then from that point on, the builders would rely on the cornerstone to be the measure and the guide for all the other stones. Which meant, of course, that this very first stone was the most vital and precious of them all, because if your cornerstone was off, if it was faulty or misshapen or weak, it would actually throw the whole building off. So important was the cornerstone that builders were known to often spend as much time choosing and crafting the perfect cornerstone as they then went on to spend on the entire rest of the building. That's how important and precious it was. And that's Jesus, Peter tells us, the living stone chosen by God and precious to him. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the first to be raised, the first stone to be laid as the foundation. He is the guide, the measure. All other stones align themselves according to him. And without this cornerstone, there is no us, right? There's no building. And so it is by him that we stand or we stumble. Those are actually the only two outcomes when it comes to Jesus, standing or stumbling, which is what Peter goes on to explain in verses 7 and 8. You'll see there. Let me read it. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You see, we either set our lives in alignment with him Or we set ourselves up to fall. Why? Well, because God has chosen the Son to be the pivot point of all things. Everything hangs on Him and is governed by what we choose to do with this stone. Will we come to God and in faith and trust rest our full weight upon this foundation? Those who don't, who pass the stone over, who leave it by the wayside and choose to build their lives somewhere else, then this cornerstone, this pivot point of the universe, it becomes a stumbling block. And so many in our world are stumbling because they failed to see who Jesus really was and they refused to accept the claims that he made about himself. So they pass him over. They go looking for other foundations on which to build. But all who, who are built up apart from the cornerstone ultimately fall. Why? Well, because you cannot stand unless you're standing on him. All ground, all other ground, 
is sinking sand. Friends, as living stones, let us be those who stand, not stumble. Lean upon Christ as your cornerstone with everything, not just with parts of ourselves, not just with a little and not just sometimes, but rest on him with everything, always. In all of life, as individuals, as families, as a gathered community of believers, take your lead from him, align yourself with him, set your direction according to his, and allow your life to be conformed to the contours of him. I heard a simple but striking way of putting it last week. Imagine your life was a puddle. Too often Jesus is like a leaf that we let kind of rest on the surface. We lay him delicately on top, so carefully in fact that he hardly even leaves a ripple. And you know, from a distance you can see Jesus skimming across the top, but is he really a part of that puddle if he's only on the surface, if he hasn't sunk down through our whole lives to the stuff that matters the most, you know, our, our actual foundations? That's not what it looks like for our lives or for our community to be built on the cornerstone. Not at all, right? That's just dabbling. That's keeping up appearances. That's making Jesus into some kind of accessory. I wonder if any of that resonates with you. Like for some of us, some of us that may well summarize your whole Christian life. You've only ever really been dabbling. For others, maybe this is more of a recent trend you've started to slip into. You know, it doesn't have to be like that. And the first thing you actually have to do is come to terms with the fact that it is like that. Because you see, Jesus, he ain't no leaf, right? He's the living stone, chosen and precious to God, the pivot point of the universe. And when you get that, when you accept it and decide to lay all of your weight upon him, well, when this stone comes in contact with our puddle, everything moves. Brothers and sisters, you are like living stones. So stand, don't stumble. I was having breakfast with my dad this week. We try to do it once a fortnight. I told him what I was preaching on today, and he said that this next bit of our passage, these last two verses, are probably his favorite in the whole Bible. I was like, wow, no pressure. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. And you know, when we take a look at these words, there in verses 9 and 10, it's pretty easy to see why I like them so much. Have a read with them of them with me. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Where do you even start with that? <laughs> I think it's pretty hard to do justice to the magnitude of these verses without first understanding a little bit about when this description was first given to ancient Israel back in the book of Exodus. 
Now, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Exodus, get familiar because it's a great story. It's in the Old Testament, right at the very beginning, and it tells the story of Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt. It was kind of a big deal, right? They'd been there for 400 years, working without pay, abused, despised, and forbidden from leaving. So they were slaves, in other words. God raised up a fellow named Moses to lead the people to freedom. It didn't happen immediately. took a bit of time, got a little messy. But eventually God's power prevailed. Pharaoh relented, and Israel walked out of Egypt as free people. But there's a slight issue. You see, these people are not really a people yet. They've just spent 400 years in Egypt, so they're more Egyptian than anything else. Eventually, in Exodus 19, God directs Moses to bring the people to Mount Sinai. Now, if Israel had, has a born-again moment, you could actually make the case that it happens right here in Exodus 19, because it's here on the mountain that God offers them a new identity. Here's how he puts it. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Sounds familiar, right? It's not quite word for word, but it's pretty close. Peter, in our passage, is drawing a direct line from Israel's born-again identity to ours. Those who come to the Lord, who put their trust in Christ, the cornerstone, who've been sprinkled by his blood and forgiven for their sins, they're now a part of God's new people. That's massive. Once in darkness and without mercy, now God's special possession, chosen and holy, not because we managed to obey, but because Jesus became our obedience for us. Now notice that God doesn't just give Israel a new identity, he actually gives them a new job. They, they are to be a kingdom of priests. You know what priests do, right? Priests praise God. That's their thing. And to praise God is to give him glory. And not just in song, which is what we naturally think about when we think of praise, but they actually glorify God by their service and their sacrifice. They glorify him through what they pray through how they obey and what they give thanks for. And they don't just do it for God's sake. You know, priests are actually called to lead the praise. God commissions Israel here in Exodus 19 to become his priests of praise to the world, to actually lead the nations in glorifying God. And you know, if you, you read Exodus closely enough, you notice that worship was actually the whole point in God bringing Israel out of Egypt, right? When you leave, you will worship God on this mountain, he says. Say this to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might worship me. God was saving Israel for this very purpose, that they might be his priests of praise. Guess what? So it is with us. As God's new people, we too have been commissioned for such a task. Peter actually refers to us as a priesthood twice, in verse 5 and again in verse 9. And notice that as he does, praise is never far away. 
when he describes us, for instance, as, as offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. He's not, he's not talking about the offering of animals to atone for sin. Jesus has done that already. But rather, it's the offering of praise to the glory of God. And in there in verse 9, we see, after he's rattled off that marvelous list, chosen, holy, special, he ends with the why. Can you see that there? That we might declare the praises of him who called you. You see that? As it was for Israel, so it is for us. Because you see, praise is the point. It's why we've been called from darkness into light. It's why we've received mercy and been set free from sin and death. So that we might offer grateful praise to our glorious God. Now, I don't know about you, but I, th I think it's natural to feel a bit uneasy about this idea that we've been saved to praise. Something about it sounds a bit off. Like, what, has God got some kind of self-esteem issues or something? Is he really so insecure, so self-obsessed? Does he actually care more about being praised than he does about me? Here's the thing to remember. Our praise... It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's actually born in the context of relationship. You see, God's actually the one who makes the first move. He gives himself each time he speaks, each time he acts or provides or judges or saves or sustains. He actually reveals a bit of himself to the world. He generously unfurls his glory across the earth. It's actually everywhere around us which is exactly what the cherubim sing in Isaiah chapter 6 when they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's everywhere. And you know, to praise God is simply to recognize this fact, to recognize his glory as we see it around ourselves, to tell it like it is, to give credit where credit is due. It's to drink in the glory of his revelation as it comes to us by his word, in his creation, or most chiefly in the coming of the sun, and to gaze upon all of it that has been given to us and be utterly captivated by just how wide and long and high and deep is his love for us and to say, thank you. What a magnificent God you are. That's praise. You know what the craziest thing about it all is? Our praise actually moves God. Did you know that? God delights in us delighting in Him. God delights in us delighting in Him. That's actually at the heart of relationship right there. The interplay, the back and forth of mutual self-giving love. He gives. And we give, and all the while each of us are delighting in the other. It's like when I have breakfast with my dad. You know, he'll shoot me a text and, and I'm there. He took me to a Blind Barrel the other week, if you've been there before. He, uh, he bought me the breakfast bagel, which can I tell you is something quite extraordinary. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. You know what? As we shared that glorious food together, my dad took delight in my delight. 
That's the way relationship works. Can you imagine, though, if he ordered the bagel for me, but instead of sitting down to eat it with him, I get them to bag it up so I can take it and go. I get the bagel, but I lose out with dad. That's why praise is the point. It's actually a fundamental part of our relationship with God. But I think quite often we struggle with praise because we simply miss the glory that's around us. We're too busy. Life's too crazy. There's too much other stuff going on. So maybe what we need to do is slow down every once in a while and actually ask God to reveal his glory to you. Sometimes we struggle because we don't know what to say. We haven't got the vocab. Why not try spending a season reading through the book of Psalms and you know, make a list of all the best phrases and descriptions of God as you come to them. And then when you've got your list, you can use it to fuel your prayers of praise. I love... Uh, this call to praise by a guy named Charles Spurgeon, who was a great 19th century preacher. I want to finish by actually sharing this call to praise with you. Here's what he says. God's praise is constant in heaven, which is to be thy final dwelling place. So learn how to practice the eternal hallelujah. Around the earth, as the sun scatters his light, his beams awaken grateful believers to tune their mourning hymn, so that by the priesthood of the saints, perpetual praise is kept up at all hours. Girdle the earth, then, with your praises. Surround it with an atmosphere of melody, and God himself will hearken from heaven to accept your music. Who we are shapes how we are. Friends, we are rocks and priests. As we stand firmly fixed upon the rock of Christ, let us be those who never cease to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. Amen. We're going to do something a little different now. Rather than moving into our final song, we're actually going to just take a few moments to slow down and to pray with those who we're gathered with today. Now, if you're on your own, don't worry. You know, God's still going to hear your prayers. But all of us, gather together with one or two or a few more and take a few slow moments as the living stones that we are to pray together and to offer your prayers of praise and thanksgiving to our great God. Let's pray.